Welcome to the audio described program for The Cherry Orchard, a Burning Coal production. Burning Coal Theatre Company presents The Cherry Orchard, written by Anton Chekhov, directed by Randolph Curtis Rand, April 6th through 23rd, 2023. A note from the artistic director, Jerome Davis. Some playwrights hammer away at big ideas and end up with very small plays. Plays that seem to grow flaccid like a french fry left on the plate too long. The shape is still there, the coloring, but it just isn't appealing anymore. Other playwrights, like Anton Chekhov, focus on the minutia of everyday life and somehow find that they have written plays for all people, for all times. The Cherry Orchard might be his best example of that rare skill. In this play, we meet a well-off community, a group so comfortable in their position that they almost literally become blind to their own impending doom. Chekhov thought this was a comedy. So do I. In present-day America, we have discovered that there is a class of people, not unlike the czars of old Russia, that own everything, that control the flow of information, that are buddy-buddy with those entrusted with making us safer, and that instantly change the law to allow their indiscretions and criminalize those who resist them. In short, they got it all. For them, the logical question would be, now how do we hold on to it? In Tsarist Russia, the answer was to bury your head in the sand and hope that what happened yesterday will happen tomorrow. But are we much different here today? As I look around for clues, I'm inclined to believe the answer is no. The ruling class in America seems to believe that tightening their grip on those who would object to their rule is the quick and easy solution. That impulse has grown worse in my lifetime, and particularly so in the past decade. In days of old, five minutes ago, it was possible to lose gracefully if you were a public figure. Not so much anymore. If they win, hosannas abound. If they lose, let the blame game begin as they reach for a broadcasting or print media paycheck in control of the public discourse that way. But fear not. There's an old saying, journalism is the first draft of history, art is the final draft, or to put it more directly, Chekhov has got your back. Here then is the final draft on a declining society, on a creeping authoritarianism that knew and knows that its spiritual rot was and is finally starting to show. Enjoy the cherry orchard and enjoy the laughs while you can. Jerome Davis, April 2023. Sponsors for this show include The Residence Inn and their restaurant 10th and Terrace, The Classical Station, Smith Anderson Law Firm, and Trophy Brewing. About the play. The Cherry Orchard, Russian playwright Anton Chekhov's final play, is a tragicomedy following a wealthy family and their servants caught in the middle of one societal collapse and the birth of another. The socioeconomic divide is on the precipice, and when it all comes tumbling down, a cacophony of laughter and tears can be heard over the noise. Burning Coal Theatre Company, Jerome Davis, Artistic Director, 
Simi Kastner, Managing Director, presents The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov. Directed by Randolph Curtis Rand. Production Stage Manager, Adam Budlong. Scenery Design by Matthew Pezulich. Lighting Design by Chris Popovich. Properties Design by Philip R. Carter. Technical Director, Joel Sorin. Sound Design, Valentina Cordoba. Costume Design, Stacey Harrison. Assistant to the Director, Carrie Von Sprouse. Master Electrician, Barry Jacob. Scenic Charge Artist, Meredith Riggin. House Manager, Carrie Von Sprouse. Assistant Stage Managers, Christopher Barefoot, Juliana Frasca, Emily Johns, and Samantha Kaiser. Choreographed by Avis Hatcher Puzo. Study Guide by Eric Kildow. Assistant to the Scenic Artist, Cole Train. We cannot produce the quality of work done at Burning Coal without the assistance of our many wonderful volunteers. If anyone is interested in learning more about the volunteer opportunities at Burning Coal, please contact us at info at burningcoal.org. Set Description A white stage greets audience members. The back wall of the theater is also painted white. The white begins to dissipate into the black floor around the edges of the playing space, like clouds against a clear night sky. Center stage. A short table with two child-sized chairs stacked on top sits underneath a white sheet. In the house down left corner sits a white cupboard covered with another sheet. Further in the left corner of the house is a microphone and mic stand. A row of assorted dark wooden chairs lines the back of the stage. Behind the chairs is a table covered with a white tablecloth, holding props for the first act in the center. At each head of the table sits computer monitors and an operating board. Behind the props table and equipment are assistant stage managers, operators for the light and sound boards, and Adam Budlong, stage manager of the Cherry Orchard. Adam will read aloud scene descriptions at the top of each location change. All technicians wear black clothes with accent pieces that match the colors of the actor's costumes across the different scenes. White for Act 1, green for Act 2, red for Act 3, and black or brown for Act 4. Hanging from the rafters is a large arch built with thick wooden beams painted white. The arch hangs behind the center stage table, and actors must cross under from the arch to enter a scene from their chairs. Actor Descriptions Actors change accent clothing pieces for each new location of the play. For Act 1, white gloves, suit jackets, and shawls swath the actors. Green vests, pocket squares, and ties spring up for Act 2. Red carnival masks, sashes, and fans adorn performers during Act 3. Act 4 is full of heavy dark coats, brown suitcases, and black riding gloves. Actors will be listed in order of appearance, starting with Jordan Lichtenheld, playing Dunyasha. She is a young black woman standing at average height, 
she enters from house left, lighting her way with a single tapered candle. Her chestnut curly hair reaches her shoulders, growing redder toward the ends. Dunyasha wears a white peasant top with a square neckline, a long black skirt, and black boots with a slight heel. She carries herself through the world with buoyant steps, shaking with excitement. She is seen taking the sheets off of the table and cupboard and preparing the room for the arrival of the family. Juan Isler, playing Lopakin, is a middle-aged black man of average height. He is a bald, stocky businessman and moves through the world with tenacity and urgency. He wears a white vest over a black button-down, black slacks, and black loafers. The play opens on him wearing a white suit jacket, asleep in an upstage chair, with a book still in his hands. John Jimerson, playing Yepi Hodoff, is a white man of average height. He has salt and pepper hair and sports mutton chops and a mustache, but a bare chin. He wears wire-framed glasses with circular lenses, a light taupe button-down, black trousers, and dull brown loafers. Yepihodov carries a blue guitar with him occasionally, which he attempts to play to varying degrees of success. There's a clumsy, timid manner about him. He is often knocking over or running into something, and is always trying to minimize the amount of inconsiderate noise his shoes make. Stephen Jones, playing Fierce, is a black man of tall stature in his 60s. Fierce, an almost 90-year-old butler, relies on a cane and wears glasses with thick black frames surrounding thick circular lenses. The crown of his head is bare, with a ring of short gray and black hair around the sides and back of his skull. He wears a black overcoat with coattails over a white button-up, black slacks, white gloves, a pocket square, and black loafers. After Dunyasha and Lupakin exit to greet the travelers, he crosses the stage at a snail's pace to his chair in the back. Aaron Amliki, playing Yasha, enters after Anya, nose in the air. She walks the perimeter of the space. A tall white woman with curly shoulder-length ash blonde hair she stands proud in her suit, wearing black riding gloves and black ankle-length boots. She carries a large brown suitcase and can be seen smoking cigars in her chair from time to time. The role of Yasha is understudied by Susanna Skaggs, a tall white woman with short brown hair and round glasses. Maxine Elwa, playing Varia, enters near the front of the crowd from the train station, clutching a rosary and cursing the cold. She is a black woman of average height, with raven black curls kept out of her face with a clip. Varya moves through the world with a busy, purposeful gait. She wears a long-sleeve white button-down, a black floor-length skirt with a thin brown leather belt and black flats. From her belt hangs a ring with an absurd amount of ornate keys. After taking her seat upstage, she keeps her head bowed in prayer, occasionally sniffling and crying. 
Mark Filiacci, playing Gaev, enters next. A tall, older white man, his mostly gray curls float around his head. He wears a rust-colored button-down with a white bandana around his neck, brown slacks, and brown loafers. He can often be seen snacking on hard candy and playing games of billiards in his head. Every now and again, he mimes pulling back a pool cue and striking the cue ball. Jean Corden, playing Semyonov's squeaky toy, enters carrying luggage and chuckling with the crowd. He is a bald white man in his 60s with scraggly gray whiskers and circular wire-framed glasses. He wears a white button-down, white sweater vest, khaki brown slacks, and brown loafers. Once in his chair, he continuously pulls a humble stack of rubles out of his pocket to count, immediately forgetting the total after repocketing the money and starting the cycle all over. Abby Colborn, playing Charlotta, enters toward the back of the crowd, carrying a small light brown suitcase and a small stuffed Yorkie nestled in the crook of her elbow. They are a tall white person assigned female at birth, with short brown hair slicked back with a side part. They wear dark brown corduroy pants, brown ankle-length boots, and a white button-up beneath a black vest. After taking her seat upstage, she alternates between doting on her puppy and shuffling a deck of cards from her pocket. Linda Clark, playing love, daughter of Andre, flies onto stage after Anya beckons for her. She is an older white woman of slightly taller stature. She wears a white button-down, black floor-length skirt, and black heels. A deep blue patterned scarf is tucked into her collar, and her hair is swept up into an elegant updo. She carries a small coin purse on a delicate gold chain. Love roams through the nursery with childlike wonder, her skirt swishing with each twirl. Matthew Hager, playing Petya Trofimov, enters from backstage, unnoticed after the welcome party has broken up, whilst Love, Varya, and Gaev gaze at the orchard through an unseen window. He is a younger white man, tall. He wears jeans with a dark leather belt and a gray plain t-shirt, along with brown boots. A special thanks to City of Raleigh Arts Commission, NC Arts Council, United Arts of Wake County and Raleigh, Schubert Foundation, Man Bites Dog Fund, Maggie Freela, David Rainey, Glenn Sappy, RLT, Dennis Burfield and Raleigh Little Theater, Downtown Housing Improvement Corporation, Carrie Grindham Corbett, Gabrielle Simone, Katie Kennedy, Nick Carner, house managers and volunteers, all the wonderful volunteers who have helped make our theater and this production strong. The History of Burning Coal Theater Company Burning Coal Theater Company was established in 1997 by Jerome Davis and Simi Kastner. 
The company's goal is to emphasize works that are experienced viscerally, unlike more traditional linear plays where audiences are most often asked to observe without participating. Using the best local, national, and international artists available, we produce explosive re-examinations of overlooked classics, modern classics, and new plays that address ideas significant to our community. With this in mind, we strive to achieve high-energy performances with minimalist production values. The History of the Murphy School Originally constructed in 1908, the Murphy School Auditorium served Raleigh until 1977 as an elementary school. In the summer of 1960, the Raleigh City School Board met in this auditorium and voted to begin the desegregation of Raleigh City Schools. That fall, the first African-American student to attend an historically white school in Raleigh was admitted to the Murphy School. When Wake County took over the school system, they determined that the building was too small for the growing needs of the community and shut the building down. In 1991, a group of concerned citizens led by then-Mayor Smee York and the Downtown Housing Improvement Corporation created from the classrooms a new housing facility for low-income senior citizens, but the auditorium sat empty for 31 years from 1977 until 2008 when Burning Coal was able to raise the money to renovate the old building and turn it into a state-of-the-art facility, as you see today. When we began the renovation, the building had no electricity, no HVAC system, no plumbing, plenty of holes in the walls, ceiling and floor, and certainly no theatrical equipment such as the lighting grid and equipment that you will see above you. In other words, it was a mess. The beautiful space we see today is the result of a lot of hard work by a lot of people in this community without whom we would never have been able to achieve this result. For that and for them, we are eternally grateful.